We're really glad that you're here today. We're going to finish up our two-part series on generosity, and Keith did a wonderful job starting that off last Sunday for us. And if you missed it, I encourage you to go online to our Facebook or YouTube or podcast to listen to that message as we think about being the generous people of God. For several years, I've followed a guy named Carlos Whitaker on social media, on Instagram. And Carlos has done a lot of different things in his life. He has been a worship leader and a songwriter. He's an author, a podcaster, he's a speaker, he's a dad and a husband as well. And when someone asks Heather, his wife, what Carlos does for a living, her response is, he's a hope dealer. He deals in hope. He loves to tell stories about hope and invite people to participate in stories of hope. And as part of his work, Carlos travels all over the nation speaking at churches and conferences. And on one of his trips, he had this layover in Atlanta Airport, which some of you can experience before. And uh, he was in line to get some food and he heard this beautiful piano music playing. And he just assumed it was through the system of the airport. But then he looked over and he saw a guy playing a beautiful grand piano. So as a fellow musician, he took his lunch and he went over to sit by this guy and enjoy the music. And eventually, he started a conversation with this man. 66-year-old Tony had been playing at the airport for four years. He had been unable to travel anymore because of kidney failure and daily dialysis. And now he was blessing people in the airport with his musical abilities. And as Carlos listened to him play, he noticed that Tony only had about $13 in his tip jar, and he'd been playing for a few hours. So Carlos, who has over 200,000 followers on Instagram, decided to take a video of Tony playing, and he posted it on his account, and he invited his followers, known as the Insta Familia, to give Tony a virtual tip. Now, Carlos had no idea if anyone would do this or not, but he felt led by the Spirit to share this story of hope with others. Within one hour, Carlos and his family had raised $10,000 for Tony. Well, Carlos had to catch a plane. That's why he was there to begin with. And before he left, he spoke to Tony, and he told him what he had done and what these strangers had done. And the picture on the left is a screenshot from Carlos's video the moment Tony heard what these people had done for him. He was overwhelmed by their generosity, the generosity of complete strangers. Well, by the time that Carlos got home that night to Nashville, they had raised $55,000. And by the time Carlos shut that whole thing down, they had given $70,000 to Tony. This act of generosity changed Tony's life, and he continues to pay it forward today. Now, in a news cycle full of division and self-interest, Stories like these capture our hearts. They resonate with us. We ache for stories of hope and goodness. They are balm to our weary and tired and discouraged souls. And this story about Tony and Carlos was picked up by major media outlets, and they've been interviewed countless times. Carlos's Insta Familia continues to grow. And in the six months since they began this, they have given over $775,000, nearly $1 million, 
to strangers and organizations. And they've done this together because they realize that together they are generous. They are better together. When these internet strangers from different races and different cultures and different religions and different political ideologies and different financial means come together, extraordinary things happen. And not just for the recipients of the generosity, but also for those who give. Carlos invited them to be active participants in a story that was larger than them, a story of hope and redemption. They were included in something greater than themselves. They've become this community that's centered around generosity and hope. And in fact, today, the Insta Familia is planning little meetups in cities all over the U.S. because they found a common thread of hope and joy among each other. Because generous living is a powerful, unifying, hope-dealing way of living. And stories like these are beacons to us, guiding us to be the kind of people that we want to be, the, the people that we're called to be, the people that are made in the image of a generous, hope-dealing God. And this morning, I want to share with you another inspirational story of generosity and hope. It's a story of a mother and a daughter-in-law, and both of them are widows. See, these women came from two very different groups of people with a long history of fighting. Yet their story of love and faithfulness and generosity through the greatest of heartbreaks and hardships still inspire us today. Now, our assigned lectionary Bible reading today actually plops us down towards the end of the story. And so if you'll let me, I want to set the stage for you as we read our text today. The opening of the book of Ruth in our Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, begins with sorrow, both national sorrow and personal sorrow. There's famine in the land, and it is devastating. And it was, there was famine in the region of a town named Bethlehem, and that is where Naomi and her husband, both Israelites, lived. And so because of this, they left Bethlehem, and they traveled to Moab on the other side of the Dead Sea. Now, Moabites and Israelites are, have a very long, complicated history. You could read about it in Genesis. They were enemies. But sometimes, you know, the need to survive can lead us to cross lines we never thought we'd cross and to move to places we never really wanted to go. And while living in Moab, this foreign territory, Naomi's two sons marry Moabite women named Ruth and Orpah. And after about 10 years, the women, all three of them, are left alone when their husbands die. And as widows living in a man's world, a very much a man's world, they were the most vulnerable, the most marginalized. So Naomi begins to hear that things are, back, are better back home in Bethlehem. And so she decides to go back home. And she tells her daughter-in-laws that they should stay with their mothers, that it would be better for them to stay with their own people. And they both don't want to go, but at her urging, Orpah hugs Naomi and leaves. But the Bible tells us that Ruth clung to Naomi, refusing to leave her side. And so Ruth moves back to Bethlehem to a land she doesn't know as a widowed, barren immigrant to land among her enemies. And when they get back at Bethlehem, it's the beginning of the barley harvest. 
So in this new place to provide for Naomi and for herself, Ruth, in a spirit of love and generosity, goes to work the fields among the poor and the outsiders. And the Hebrew law contained a command that landowners must not harvest all the produce of their fields. They were to leave the edges and the corners uncut. And then when they came to pick up what was cut, they could only do that once, leaving everything else behind for the poor, the immigrants, and the widows to pick up. And in this way, the poor were taken care of and could gather these things for their own needs. This was a law in a community about how to live in relationship with one another that mirrored and reflected God's heart. That they were all connected, that they were each other's harvest. Gwendolyn Brooks was the first black author to win the Pulitzer Prize and to be appointed poetry consultant to the Library of Congress, its position now known as the Poet Laureate. And her 1970 poem entitled Paul Robeson, she wrote these words, we are each other's harvest. We are each other's business. We are each other's magnitude and bond. We are each other's harvest means that when we nurture and support one another, we all benefit. We all reap the rewards of another's success and well-being. Now, a man named Boaz, a devout Jew full of integrity, knew well the law of the harvest, and he practiced it faithfully in his fields. And Ruth happens to show up in his field that day to begin to glean or pick up the leftovers. And when Boaz notices Ruth, and he asks and learns her story and about her sacrificial generosity and faithfulness to her mother-in-law, Boaz shows extravagant generosity to Ruth, going above and beyond what the, the law required. He gives permission to her to gather in places that others were not allowed to gather, and he instructs his men to watch over, protect her, and to leave extra for her as she goes through the fields. And that evening when Ruth returned after sundown, she brought home an unimaginable abundance because of the generosity of Boaz. Surprised, Naomi asked, where did you get this abundance of gatherings today? And so Ruth tells her about Boaz and his amazing generosity. And shocked, Naomi tells Ruth, Boaz is our kinsman. He is related to my dead husband. And because of that, he is a family protector or family redeemer. And this culture practice in Israel declared that if a man in the family died, and he left behind a wife or children or land, then it was the responsibility of this family redeemer to marry the widow, to take up the land, and to protect that family. So upon learning about Boaz, Naomi's beginning to hope again that there is some future for her family. And this is where our text picks up today in chapter 3, and then we're going to skip over to a few verses at the end of chapter 4. Follow along with me. Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to Ruth, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you so that it may be well with you. Now here is our kinsman Boaz, with whose young women you have been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So now wash and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, 
Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And Ruth said to her, All that you tell me, I will do. So Ruth obeys Naomi, and she takes the initiative to let Boaz know that she is ready to marry again and to ask him to honor his role as kinsman and to marry her. And Boaz, moved again by Ruth's loyal love to Naomi and learning of their kinship, agrees. And picking up in chapter 4, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without next of kin. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood came and gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, and he became the father of Jesse, the father of David. The beautiful story of the book of Ruth concludes with this shocking, almost soap opera-like ending, telling us that Ruth and Boaz's son, Obed, is the father of Jesse, the grandfather of David, the future king of Israel, and the lineage that would eventually lead to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Get that, Ruth. The widowed immigrant from Israel's enemy becomes the great-grandmother of Israel's beloved King David. Ruth, the Moabite, who should have never been allowed in the assembly of God based on the religious laws of the time, ends up playing a foundational role in the life of Israel, becoming one of only four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Once again, God defies our human declarations of who's in and who is out in God's great story of redemption. Now through the generous spirit and loyalty of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and through God at work in all of the seemingly mundane, ordinary things of the day, all these tragedies are reversed. Marriage, family, they each in their own unique ways become hope dealers. They are Ruth. Naomi, Boaz, they are each other's harvest, each other's business, and each other's magnitude and bond. Their decisions on how to use what they have, whether wealth or time or loyalty or privilege, whether to use these things for the common good or solely for their own good, had ripple effects for generations. The story of this ancient Insta Familia is a story of how God is partnering with God's people to make God's dream for the world possible. And the book of Ruth invites us to consider how God might be inviting us through obedience and generosity to partner together in God's greater story of redemption, inviting us to be hope dealers with God. Now, there are countless stories of how First Baptist Church has joined together to be generous partners with God in dealing hope. And here are just a few that I'm aware of just in the last month. A Sunday school class providing a bereavement meal for a widow and her family 
during their time of grieving. Two ladies who give rides week after week for those that are unable to drive themselves. A couple giving money so that three youth could go on fall retreat next weekend. A church that donated an obscene amount of candy and time to dress up and bless the children and families of our community. A small group of freshman girls who all bought tickets to their small group members play to cheer her on. A church that gives faithfully to our budget needs to support these facilities so that we can gather to worship, that we can host faith formation activities for all ages, so that we can host uh, support groups and recreational groups and grief support groups. A couple opening their home and their wallet so that some young families could gather together for a much needed time of fellowship. A church that has given nearly $25,000 this year towards benevolent needs in our community. A couple that provides weekly Bible studies and care visits to our senior citizens in their homes and in the care facilities. Those are just the ones that I'm aware of. When this congregation from different races, different cultures, different religions, different political ideologies, and different financial means comes together, extraordinary things happen, not just for the recipients of the generosity, but as much so for those who do the giving. God invites us to be active participants in his greater story of hope and redemption. God includes us in something greater than ourselves. And we can be a community that's centered around generosity, generosity of our resources, generosity of love, generosity of grace and mercy. This congregation is our own Insta Familia, our own community of hope dealers. And the thing about being hope dealers is this, you become hope receivers at the very same time. That is the gift of generosity. Generosity does more than meet needs. It transforms those who participate. This week, our budget proposal for the new year as a congregation will be sent out to our church family. And in that mailing will be an invitation to give now and a commitment card to think about prayerfully what you will give in the new year as we continue to partner with God and God is inviting us to participate in a story that is much greater than any of us can do on our own, to be a community of hope dealers through generous living. First Baptist, we are each other's harvest. We are each other's business. We are each other's magnitude and bond. Let's pray together. Generous and loving God, we thank you for the stories of Carlos and Tony, and for the stories of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. We know, God, that generosity comes from compassion and from trust. And so enlarge our hearts to be more compassionate and expand our trust in you as our ultimate provider and sustainer. God, grow in us a spirit of generosity and develop in us the practice of generosity so we might more fully join you and what you are doing in the world. God, set us free from the love of money and set us free from the prison 
of a scarcity mindset. Help us to be truly a congregation of hope dealers and thus hope receivers. And may the generosity of this church, God, be a beacon to those in our world in need of your hope. Amen.